background in this in this book because we're not going to get um, we're not going to get super deep in it. But I want you to understand what's going on in the book of the Revelation. This is uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The the word revelation in Greek um, it, it can be taken a lot of different ways. It's the Greek word apokalupsis, um, the unveiling, the uncovering. Um, what it really is, uh, the way that it was used in ancient documents, um, was the idea of a, um, well there are two, two metaphors that are used. Um, one is the idea of a, a stream that's underground, that comes, that bursts forth. You know, you know how a stream, how many of you guys that hike, you know what I'm talking about, right? A stream, it's just there, it just came out of nowhere, and you say, that, oh look, water. Um, most of us think water is a faucet, you turn it on and it comes out, but that all comes from somewhere. Up in the mountains, a, a, uh, a stream is actually an underwater storage of water, and it just basically bursts forth from the ground, and that idea of it bursting forth, that's in Greek, it's apocalypsis, it's this coming forth of something that's already present. Uh, the other one is the birth of a child, that's actually the metaphor that John uses very often in his in the book of Revelation, that a child, you know, that child is in the mom's belly for a long time. Um, men, it, it's experienced for men, it's about nine months. For women, they know it's ten months. Um, and uh, and then that baby is born and comes forth. That's the idea of apocalypse. It's something that exists, which is hidden, being unveiled. And that's what it is. And it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. All right? Um, and so that's what this book is about. This book is about Jesus, the reality of who Jesus is, breaking forth into our world, into our reality. And so it's a very, very beautiful but complicated book. It's, it's not simple. It's not an easy to understand book, primarily because it made perfect sense to people living in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, but we neither live in Asia Minor nor do we live 2,000 years ago. So, so there's a lot of imagery that probably made a lot of sense to them that makes no sense to us. But we're not going to get into all that. So um, we're going to be in the book of Revelation in chapter 1. And I'm going to begin in verse 4. So if you have your Bible with you, um, I'm going to be reading from the same version as the Bibles that are in the racks. Um, so, so you'll be able to follow around. But it's pretty much the same across the board or regardless what translation of the scriptures you read. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, John that's the author, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. So there's God the Father and the Spirit of God, the seven spirits, I'll explain in a second, and from Jesus Christ, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Let's go ahead and take a moment and pray as we we look to the word of God and let's turn our focus and minds to what the scriptures have to say. Father, as we look to this written word, help us to see the underlying reality, the underlying truth of the living word, Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit will speak to us Speak through us, speak by us, to transform the world around us. We ask all of this in the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
the, the Revelation is one of the last books. It is actually the last book written in the Bible, uh, written from the Bible, and it's, um, it's probably composed somewhere between um, 75 and 100 A.D., um, so it's, it's really the last book. Most people zone in and say it's written around the 90s, but it's really difficult to tell exactly when it was, set, it was written. And um, it, is, it is different from many of the other books in the Bible in that the, the author, John, has had time to process what he has seen in the life of Jesus. He's one of the apostles. He's one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly life. Um, but this is about 60 years later. Okay? So he's much older, he's been able to see the church be born. And he's, more importantly, been had the time to kind of process what they've observed. Um, if you've been with us over the last couple of, well, the last year and a half, you know that in the Gospel of Luke, there are a lot of things in the Gospel of Luke that, that Luke says, and, and Jesus said this, and he just kind of leaves it standing, because he really doesn't understand, really in detail, what Jesus had to say there. Well, by the time we get to John... Um, John has a fully developed sense of what theologians call Christology, the study of Christ. He understands now who Jesus is, and he puts it right up front. You remember in the Gospel of Luke, there are a lot of times where Jesus will make a statement that very clearly makes him out to be God. He says, I'm God. I mean, there's no denying it. Um, But Jesus says that, but it's very easy to miss it. With John, there's no way you miss it. He puts it right up front. He opens with an introduction, and he says... Um, he starts with um, this, this statement, grace and peace to you from him who is and was and is to come. And that's God the Father. He says, this is the eternal God. This is um, the God who has always been and, has always, and always will be. He's there and he speaks to the churches. Um, this statement, the seven spirits um, in the book of Revelation, the number seven is often applied to the church. Um, and so this is, this is a, a speech of God and His Spirit speaking to His church. But then he says, and from Jesus Christ. And he identifies Jesus very, very, very completely. He makes this statement. Um, he likes threes. John loves threes. He loves to put things in sets of threes. And he says this. Uh, he says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He puts these three things, he puts these three statements up there. And these three statements, they have a lot of um, theology packed into them. They have a lot of of practical thinking packed into them. First of all, he says, um, he is the faithful witness, or the witness of faith. (coughs) Excuse me. In other words, Jesus is the one who testifies. He's the one who tells. Witness means the same thing in Greek that it means in English. A witness is someone who saw something and tells others about it. But Jesus is not the only witness. Um, In fact, John himself says that he is a witness in in one of his letters um, outside of the Revelation. He says, I am a witness. We are are witnesses of what we saw and what we touched and what we felt and what we heard. And so, in a sense, John says that Jesus is, uh, was one of us. He was a witness. He saw and he tells. He, he, he reveals and he testifies of what's going on. And so he is one of us, but then he is also the firstborn of the dead. So he is not only one of us, he's also the first of us. That This, this thing that, that John 
coming out of Judaism, they had this idea that that one day uh, God would resurrect all the righteous and there would be this great big hoopla and it would be fantastic. Well, he sees in Jesus the firstborn of that. He sees the beginning of the resurrection. He sees the beginning of the victory over death. And he sees it all in Jesus. So not only is he one of us, but he's also first among us. He's not only a a witness, but he's also um, something that we haven't seen before. Something that we don't understand. The victory over death. But then he says that he is the ruler. The Greek word is archi. Um, It means first or primary. Um, In Latin it's princep, um, which is the word we get principle from. Um, both forms of principles, uh, both the ruling principles, something being principle, and the principle in school, that's three forms. Three, the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, anyway, um, so there, there, there's this idea of he is the first, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, what's he mean by that? This was a title for the Roman emperor because Romans were allergic to the idea of kings. They hated the idea of calling their ruler a king. They had thrown their kings out, and they did not have kings. What they had was a ruler that they called the first man, the first among equals. And his title was the princep, or the princep, um, the, the first man of Rome. And that first man ruled over not only the legates and proconsuls and consuls and, and, and all these different roles of Roman Empire, but he also ruled over several different kings. When you read in the Bible, you read about King Herod and, and you read about uh, the, these different kings that were in the Roman Empire. These guys were suborned to the Roman Emperor. The Roman Emperor was first, princep, or in Greek, archi. He was first over the kings of the earth. So not only is Jesus one of us, the faithful witness, and not only is he first among us, um, but he's also first over us. And he lays out this idea that Jesus is, he is both man and he is sovereign. He, he is both one of us and he is greater than us. He is uh, both uh, uh, a part of this world and not a part of this world, over this world, ruling this world, separate from this world. In fact, he continues in verse 5, as he's talking about this, he says, To him, and he's talking to Jesus, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God, his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So he's not only is he one of us, not only is he first among us, you know, first of the resurrection, not only does he rule all things, but he also loves us and has freed us from our sins through his blood. And he has set us up to be a kingdom and, and priests. And, and, and one, of the, one of the dynamics of the book of Revelation is the idea that it draws the world in two colors. Um, the first color is this world system, this this whole thing. And it could be the Roman Empire, it could be uh, the American Republic, it could be the British monarchy, it doesn't matter what it is. It's all this world system. And that world system he calls Babylon, uh, the falling Babylon or the fallen Babylon. And it, it dominates the world and it, it dominates what we see in the panorama of, of vision in our lives. We Everything we see is Babylon, but there's a second kingdom. 
There's a second world. And that second world, um, he calls the New Jerusalem. And that New Jerusalem is in Christ. And it is being born. Remember Revelation, that image of, um, of a child being born. John uses that idea that this New Jerusalem is being born. Inside fallen Babylon, it is it is birthed inside the world system, and it it is in a constant tension with that world system. There is a constant. What's in Greek? It's thlipsis, the word tribulation or 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 pain or difficulty. There is a constant birthing pain as that new Jerusalem is born inside of the fallen Babylon, and one day Babylon will fall, and new Jerusalem will be realized, and Jesus will finally be not only in, in the concept first among the kings of the, of the earth, but in reality king of the earth. This is the core theme of this book. The new Jerusalem is being born. This, this new thing that God is doing is being born right now. That the church is a part of this birthing. That the church is not observers of God's glory, but participants in God's glory. That we are not just students of what the Holy Spirit would do or, or that God would perform in life, but that we are actual active participants in what God is doing in the world. And this is a message of such importance that John takes his time to frame it in such a way that his readers understand it. And that brings us to really the core idea, the core point um, of really what I want to share with you this morning. Look at the way that John describes Jesus. Just look at it. Do you think he just dashed that off? It's just one day, I'm going to write a letter about Jesus. Uh, I'm going to call him um, Faithful Witness. And what's another term? Somebody give me another idea I could refer to Jesus by. Uh, firstborn of the dead, and, oh, that'll be good. That'll really irritate the Romans. Uh, Princep of the kings of the earth. No. John, very carefully, meticulously, dives into a pool of images to draw out an, a, a way of conveying to his readers just who Jesus is. And that pool of images, it's, it's filled with, with images from uh, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's filled with images from Jewish tradition. It's filled with images from the, the world that he lived in, the culture that he lived in. It's filled with images from the, the apostles who had, who had written before him. It's filled with his experiences. They're all the, the experiences of these churches. They're all images that are in this pool. And John, very carefully reaches down into that pool and draws out of it a way to refer to Jesus, to refer to his Savior. So he doesn't just say, this is a letter from Jesus, but rather he very carefully crafts his language so that we say, this is not just a letter from some dude. This is not some, uh, some guy talking about something. But this is important. This is significant. This is powerful. This has meaning. Um, when I first became a pastor uh, of Heritage Baptist, one of the seed churches that formed Bedford Road back in 2004, one of the first Sunday evening series I did, and some of you were, series is, is that a word? Uh, I hate it when that happens. Um, one of the first series that I did on a Sunday evening, we used to have a Sunday evening service, I started studying the book of Revelation. Some of you were with us, and you remember when I stopped. 
And the reason I stopped was I realized that the way I was teaching the book just did not, it didn't fit. This book was too big for what I was trying to convey. It, 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 it didn't fit the system that I had been taught, and I swore that I, I, would, I would never again teach the book of Revelation. So that shows you what happens when you swear something like that. Um, but um, but the, the reality is this book, this book elevates language in a way that we have to take, we have to take notice of. And Jesus or John digs into this pool. He, he reaches into this pool and he pulls some things. He pulls some language out of the Old Testament and Jewish tradition and, and his experience as a Jew and, and the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus and, and the Gospels and, and the Apostles and, and from the world that he lived in, um, his context, the Roman Empire and the Greek world and all these things. He pulls these things out and he uses them to refer to Jesus. And, and I want to I take that and I want to use it as a challenge um, for us as a church and as people. See, we sometimes, we're, we're very offhand about the way we talk about God and about Christ. We're very, we're almost dismissive. And we don't do it on purpose. It's not, it's not an intentional thing. It's not, like, it's not like a group of Christians get together and say, well, what's the, the most casual way that we can refer to Jesus? Um, you know, can we call him our buddy or our daddy or, you know, he's, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen people, um, one, of, one of my, my uh, I'm going to get people mad at me no matter what I do. Um, one of my least favorite ways to refer to Jesus, there are two, um, and they kind of fit together and, and it's used by people I know, so it, it, it's going to upset somebody if they hear the recording, but I asked Jesus to be my forever friend. I don't even know what that means. You know, I mean, it's the best buds. We get a locket. One says Jesus, one says me. We separate it and we pass it along as a charm bracelet. What does that mean? And the other one is I ask Jesus into my heart, which you'll find nowhere in the Bible. It doesn't say that you ask Jesus into your heart. You accept him as Savior, Lord, and Master. Um, you submit to him. But, but th- these, these, these metaphors, they're, they're offhand because they're easy for us to kind of throw out there. They're, they're, they're simple. Um, you know, when your kids pray, they usually start their prayers with uh, dear God or dear Jesus or um, what are some other, other ones that um, Heavenly Father. You know, you never hear a child, an eight or a nine year old child, begin a service with, uh, begin a prayer with Pantocrator Theotokos. You know, they don't, they, don't, they don't have these big terms. I can't call Jesus Theotokos. That means that's Mary. But anyway, um, you guys don't care about that. Delete that section. Uh, the, we, don't, we, we, we find these easy ways, don't we? These convenient ways. In Jesus' name, amen. That's all one word, right? Um, we end our prayers in Jesus' name, amen. Um, but John doesn't do that. See, John takes the time to elevate his language toward Christ. You know, in the, the 13th century in, uh, in Europe, there began this movement called the, the Gothic movement, not, not people with their hair dyed black and black fingernails. You know, not, not that. That's not real goth. Um, the, the Gothic movement was this movement, architectural movement, that was founded on two architectural principles, the, the, um, the pointed arch and the buttress. If you don't know what those are, don't worry about them. Um, but what it allowed the Europeans to do was rather than build uh, churches 
um, in the basilica style, which has kind of a dome and kind of a low ceiling, and they're, they're constructed like a cross. It allowed them to, to take their churches and take them up to really let the church rise. What the pointed arch does is it, it distributes weight um, down onto columns rather than onto the side walls of a church. So it allows the, 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 the summit, the, the peak of the, the ceiling to rise up into the heavens. And most of the people that commissioned these, they couldn't have cared less about Christ and following the Lord and all those things. They were rulers and and nobles who had money and wanted majesty. But the thing about these churches was they weren't built by professionals. They were built by the common man, the everyday man, who, who would volunteer his time because he wanted to do something. He wanted to express. He wanted to be a part of something that transcended the normal reality, the mundane. The only thing they built of stone in the Middle Ages, two things, castles and churches churches and castles you were forced to build because if you didn't build them somebody came along and lobbed off your head um, but but churches was a, a purely voluntary thing the stonemasons would craft the stones and then people like you and me would commit their time on saturdays and after long days of work by torchlight to to elevate this thing why because they wanted god their, their relationship with God, their expression of their relationship to God, with God to rise above their culture, above their language, above their abilities. They wanted it elevated and high. Later on, during the Baroque period, um, this took a different expression. Guys like Bach, um, who was a, a compo- most people don't know that, that, that Bach, the composer, was, actually worked for churches. He was a, a church musician. Um, and Bach wanted to express, he would be commissioned to write a mass, all right, a, a, a religious observance. But what most people don't realize about Bach is that Bach broke all of the rules when he wrote his masses and his religious observances. He introduced harmonies and instruments and symphonic sounds and, and dissonance and all of these different things you weren't supposed to do. Church music was supposed to be Edu Jesu Domine, Domine es requiem. You know, that, that, was, that was church music. The Gregorian chants and all that stuff. Bach takes his music and he, he takes it and he makes it soar. He makes it rise. He innovates and he changes so that his music transcends. And that's what John does here at the beginning of the Revelation. He takes from a pool of images that everybody would recognize and yet he elevates the language to God rather than bringing God down to the level of his language. You know, uh, this past Easter, I, I got endlessly frustrated. Some of the elders know about this. I was driven nuts by the fact that almost every church I knew of was not talking about Jesus on Easter. I could not. How do you, I mean, of all the days, do you? how, how do you teach on, I, there were series, of, I'm not kidding, there were series about the Easter bunny. Um, there were series about, um, uh, you know, all of these 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 weird ideas. Um, one of my friends taught a series called Junk in the Trunk. I don't even know what that means. Um, at last Halloween, there was a church in Manchester that actually had a a, a, a vampire that went around hugging people. I I I, I nah. Uh, I gotta leave that alone. I'm gonna get shouty and southern on it. Um, 
the the but the reality is this is this is the problem what happens in the church is that we take god the ultimate transcendent being we take jesus the 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 first the faithful witness the first among the firstborn among the dead the the ruler of of the kings of the earth and we bring him down to the level of our language so that we can understand him so that we can get people to 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 kind of embrace an easy form of our faith we, we kind of say, oh, this is the best way to do this, right? No. Our language, our music, our culture, our thinking, we should go into that pool of images and elevate it. Take it someplace it's never been before when we talk about our Lord. Be intentional about the way that we craft our words and our moments. I mean, there's a time for just a casual conversation. There's a time for simplicity. There's a time for that. But then there is a time to just put in the extra effort to really say what needs to be said. I think this has been lost in the modern American church. What happened in the American church was that we, we stripped away all of the images and icons and, and decorations and things, and then we got into our mind that we should paint our churches white. I have no idea where that came from. Um, it could, people say, well, it was the Puritans. Look at all the white New England churches. Puritans didn't believe in painting things. What New England churches were wood-toned. That's the color they were. Somewhere along the line, somebody's decided to start painting them white, and we haven't stopped since. Um, and But the churches, they're empty. I mean, look around this building. What's the primary decoration of this building? It's the chairs you sit in and the walls around us. There's, there's, there, we don't have a lot of religious imagery and those things. That's not necessarily bad. I think that imagery can be very distracting and become, become a, 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 a idols. Um, but then we said, well, now we need to fill the church with something because it's so empty. And what do we fill it with? We fill it with um, commercialism. We fill it with advertising. We fill it with programs. We fill it with plans because we have lost the vocabulary, the pool of images that we need to use to elevate Christ. You know, I, I've never been in a, in a home where somebody um, decided that the best way to honor their, their children and their parents and their family was to have no pictures of them anywhere. They have no expression of it. In my house, we have a we have a room in my house. Um, now you guys know I'm a I'm a little bit on the um, OCD kind of. I like things in straight lines and nice neat orders. I actually have a grid of mason line that I bring in here into this room to straighten the chairs out. Um, I like that stuff. We have this room in our house where we tape up all of the things that Ariel makes, and some of them, you know, are goofy and some of them are beautiful and most of them are just kiddish but you know the reason we do it it's because we we want to elevate that expression of her love we want to say oh this is this is good this is beautiful we praise her all the time for things i can draw um and she brings me a drawing and she goes isn't this great you know and you know the animal's got six legs and you know what oh that's a beautiful reindeer it's a bunny Right? You know, all that stuff, but it's still, oh, honey, that's beautiful, that's amazing. Why? Why do we elevate that language? Why do we bring that language up? Because we want to communicate to her meaning, right? So let me challenge you to take John's example 
And rather than bringing what we say about God down to where I am, which is the modern plague, I am the ultimate standard of what is right and good, I challenge you to elevate what you say and what you do upward toward Christ. You will never be able to express everything there is about Christ. The moment that you think you have mastered the expression of who Christ is, you're wrong. It's just a guarantee. But let's elevate our language. When we sing a song during a worship gathering or or at home or wherever you sing, uh, take the time to think about the words. Take the time to compare those words to Scripture and elevate those words. You cannot elevate God. You cannot elevate Christ by going, Yay, Jesus, we love you. 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 It don't work. Any more than following, and moms and dads, you know what your kids do. Your, your kid walks around with you going, Mom, can I have, 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 Mom, can I have. It annoys you. Don't you think it would annoy God? But rather than that, find our, our pool of images. That's why sometimes, um, on a practical term, that's, that's why sometimes we take a hymn, an old hymn, and we jazz it up and we change it and we add a verse or we, or we add a chorus or something because we want to take from that pool of images and we want to elevate those words to Christ. That's why sometimes when we say something simple, um, we should have somebody around us. We, we, we make an observance about Christ, isn't this cool and isn't this wonderful? Um, in the church setting, shouldn't we at that time take that, that observation or that, that thought and elevate it? That's why when we worship, sometimes we encourage you to say thanks to God about things. And I know, you know, the, the ultimate argument, well, Jesus, God knows everything already, so why do we need to tell him about things? Because he wants you to elevate toward him. He wants you to choose to speak to him, to create for him. I'll close with this last little bit of frustration. Um, we got rid of cable TV a couple years ago because we never watch it. So we got rid of all of the other channels. And we have the basic, 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 basic economy uh, cable package. Most of you probably don't even know that exists. But there actually is a package of cable TV that consists of public TV, um, you know, PBS, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, 18 Spanish channels, 16 telemarketing, uh, 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 shopping network channels um, and three Christian channels. The problem with this package is that unlike my more advanced package, I can't block a channel off my remote. So I wind up watching, those of you who know me know what's about to come, I wind up watching the Christian channels. I despise Christian television with everything that is in me. Because I can't figure out how it is that some of these preachers that I saw preaching six or seven years ago are still preaching the same stupid sermon. It's like, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to shock you, Nicosia. Um, but it's like, I, I saw this guy preaching on you. God loves you, wants you to be happy, wants you to walk, and it's great, Jesus loves you. Seven years later, more gray hair, still saying the exact same thing, talking the same way, quoting the same passages of Scripture, and we wonder why the world thinks Christians are idiots. We wonder why the world thinks that Christians don't think. We wonder why the world thinks that Christians are blind. 
that their faith has stripped them of creativity, that their faith has stripped them of a, a grasp on reality. We wonder why the world thinks that about us. Look at the way we present ourselves. I mean, look at the way that, that, that so many of the, the media presentations, that what is the number one thing you think of when you think of Christians on TV? Isn't it? They're asking you for money, aren't they? Everybody knows that's what Christians do on TV. That's what television evangelists do on TV. That's what they do on radio. You can't listen to a Christian radio station without at the end a plea for money. And the world looks at it and says, they say, this, this, what's the point? Elevate. Get out of that mundane, that, that burrowed, narrow, uh, uh, driven by comfort zone, driven by my own culture, driven by my own desires, form of expression, and elevate your language and your culture and your thinking and your home so that it points toward Christ. Draw from that pool of resources. Draw from from the world around you. Don't withdraw from the world around you. We are New Jerusalem in the midst of fallen Babylon. You need to be in that. That needs to be a part of your pool. And then you need to elevate. Elevate. I'll tell you the reason most people think Christians are blind and dumb. It's, It's because most Christians just maintain. They just maintain. They say the things, they do the stuff, they go to church, they, they, they follow all the rules, they just maintain rather than elevating and doing something soaring and majestic. Doing something that breaks the rules and breaks the standards and says we believe and we're passionate about this. We need to elevate. We need to elevate. We need to rise above That's what John does. That's why this is such a masterpiece. The the revelation is complicated to all get out, and yet it is a masterpiece. It has its own form of Greek. I'm not kidding. There's actually a Greek grammar written specifically to describe the way that the revelation is written. It is wholly unique. It is a masterwork of elevating language to transcend the mundane. And you and I as Christians are called to do that too. To rise. To rise. To be something. Something new. Something else. Something true. To draw from that pool of images and to speak in a way that people hear. Let's pray. Father, we... Repent of the sin of bringing Your Son down to our level. Of turning His glory and His majesty into just another thing we do. Of copying what is convenient and easy. Of embracing what is comfortable. Father, help us to find the language, to find the words, to find the images to rise. To take our expressions of faith to a new level within 
this culture, within this world, not conformed by it, but transforming it. We give you glory and honor in advance for all that you do in our midst. Lord, we praise you for what you have done and will do. And we do this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.